Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 27th of August with myself, Andres Vantanar, and my colleagues, Harry Morgan, Simon Thompson, and Peter White. I just want to kind of put a shout out there that the uh, Rethink Energy podcast has um, been um, added to the top 20 UK energy podcasts by Feedspot. And we'd love to thank Feedspot for um, including us in there. Um, some of the other, some of our rivals are also included in the top 20. I, I took time to listen to um, some of our rivals' podcasts. Um, not impressed <laughs> that, I, that I didn't hear anything new, but not surprising. Um, they all take the view of their podcast should be like academic with these long diatribes running into them qualifying what they're talking about but um, we normally just dive in so with that I want to I, I want to get straight in and um, invite Andres to talk about his new report on concentrated solar power. It's it's a very forgotten form of, of solar power it's uh, and probably everyone already knows if they're listening to this but it's where you you don't use photovoltaic panels to turn sunlight into electricity Instead, you have a larger array of mirrors that concentrate a lot of uh, sunlight at a receiver, which then heats up to uh, enough to produce steam, at least, and then the steam turns uh, turbines. It's a natural extension to thermal solar. You know, you just throw in some mirrors and concentrate it. And and people have been working on that for about 20 years. And about 2010, it kind of dipped. And why did it dip? I think it dipped for the same reason that European photovoltaics sort of died at the same time, which is just that after the 2008 recession, uh, the governments decided to cut a lot of spending. And back back in like 2008, Spain was the world leader in concentrated uh, solar power. It was probably a world leader for photovoltaics as well. And of course, back then, Spain was uh, in those years, it was all about, oh, what's the latest unemployment figure, the latest government debt figure? So it was not really able to... Um, pay for that sort of thing. And th- that's also when the, the Chinese started taking over photovoltaics. Um, but we think that it'll actually come back, concentrated solar. Uh, and, and part so of quickly, that, some numbers. Mm, Let's get to, yeah. get to the heart of it. 44.5 gigawatts to be installed over the next 10 years, by the end of 2030. Uh, yes. Uh, how much is installed today? Uh, 6.47. So, uh, yeah, 44.5 gigawatt, gigawatts to have been installed. So it does include the, the first one. But okay. so it's going to increase by a factor of seven in in a, in a decade. Really, let that's me ask you a question. Because is everybody all... who's who's going to make money out of this already invested in it, or is there still an opportunity to put money into this? Oh, there's still plenty of opportunity because you know one form is this. You've got the the Chinese are doing continuing to do a fairly recognisable and familiar form of CSP in China, and they're starting to branch out as well. So maybe they're sort of already in progress. But I think there's going to be another half of the market, which is really a different way of doing CSP that has, as I say, quite a lot in the report. The traditional CSP is only 400 degrees Celsius or 550 degrees Celsius. But in in the West, you now have several startups which are reaching 1,000 degrees. And it's not actually hard to reach 1,000 degrees at the receiver. They've just been struggling to not have the temperature melt all all their stuff. So they've had to use (laughs) ceramics and sand. And even to transmit the heat, they've had to actually use air. So the Department of uh, Energy in uh, America... Has sponsored some, uh, is it down in Sandia Lab, some kind of new 
format, um, Generation 3 CSP, which, which uses some kind of um, uh, ceramic particles to retain the heat. And, um, and they, they, they claim it get over a thousand and they're trying to get lots of people to buy into that. I mean, is that what we're witnessing? Well, we've certainly seen Heliogen, which is the obvious uh, one in the news, because they've um, partnered with ArcelorMittal and what's the other one? Rio Tinto. They should have a lot of money now for about 100 million for their R&D. But I, I also... I've got, to... I've got another question. I'm going to put this to Harry. Harry, is this a straight fight to help the industrials with heat between concentrated solar power and hydrogen, or should they be complementary? I think to a large extent they should be complementary. I think they um, they sort of overlap in different ways. I think using CSP for steel making, like you might be with ArcelorMittal, for example, you're talking much more about how the steel is going to be processed um, from sort of crude steel into different forms of steel, so things like hot rolling and that sort of thing, rather than the actual production processes. A lot of the um, processes need sort of the, the chemical reaction from the, the heat of hydrogen itself or the heat of natural gas at the moment. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's much, they're very much alongside each other and we'll need CSP more for sort of post-processing things within these industries. And yeah, I think it's something that's often overlooked. Because I, I, I could struggle to understand how the cement industry could use um, CSP. It doesn't generate the 1450 degrees, never mind the 1600 degrees that um, steel making needs. Um, well, I, I think it, it actually can. Um, I, I keep on saying 1000 degrees, but they also say 1500. And one of these, I think Sandia has said 2000 is possible. It could definitely so then happen. it becomes competitive or, or may, maybe you know, maybe it's a matter of having you have hydrogen when the, there's cloud cover and the CSP is not up to scratch. Although the CSP should, because of its storage media, be able to stay at that temperature 24-7. But you have a backup of hydrogen or maybe you have, have them both and just switching them in based on which is the cheaper I mean, one of the things that I keep coming across, I, I mentioned to uh, some guy about um, CSP being used for steel, and he was a, a, a kind of engineer who'd been around various parts of the energy industry, and he just laughed. He just said, no, it won't get to the right temperature, never work. But he said the same about hydrogen. So both of these are going to come up against a lot of resistance from people who say, I was there the first time it failed. It's the same demographic of people that have said that electric vehicles will never be able to drive more than 20 miles. It's the, uh... <laughs> no, and I don't think that's true because they weren't engineers. Uh, I, think, I think these are energy engineers. I think there's prejudice in the community. But I mean, I think we've got uh, uh, slightly too excited. I mean, it is exciting that this very, very high temperature CSP, but there's also the more traditional stuff that uses thermal oil and molten salt, at least for the next five or, may, or even 10 years. I think that'll be the majority of development. Uh, especially outside the, the US. It seems like the US has the biggest lead on the really high temperature stuff. I think it sounds like that once there's a commercial viable marketplace for this, that there's a long way to go in R&D terms to find the perfect solution for each part of the planet and, uh, and for each industry. All right, so let's, let's um, move on from DSP. Uh, the report is available www.rethinkresearch.biz reports i mean you can uh, you just click the energy button and you go down into the reports section and you can buy it straight off there if, uh, if it's something you're interested in we wanted to talk a little bit about hydrogen harry and i have been chatting about hydrogen he's done a piece uh, he's done a couple of pieces on hydrogen this this week but um it just seems that 
this idea of blue hydrogen is um, incredibly weak, both economically and even as a defence against the future market hydrogen market going entirely green. Harry, um, you you talked about uh, you did a piece on uh, the greenwashing of it, you know, and and, and a, a new study by Stanford and Cornell as well. Yeah, it, it's just, it just seems to be one of those um, classic sort of stepping stones that's going to be really unnecessary. It seems to be the same rhetoric of the discussion we had we had around sort of natural gas in the in the power sector probably about a year ago. I mean, it's particularly pressing this week. I mean, we've seen the US actually announce this sort of largest blue hydrogen plant in North Dakota, uh, and obviously there's quite a lot of uh, momentum building within hydrogen investment, which is bringing investment into the blue hydrogen itself. So what we saw. This week was this report, yeah, as you said, Peter, from Cornell and Stanford Universities in the US, sort of outlining that blue hydrogen is can actually be worse for the environment uh, than natural gas in terms of when you're sort of burning it for burning it for heat and burning it for especially burning it for power, and actually not that much better than sort of the existing ways that we're creating hydrogen and um, sort of through grey methods. So, I mean, first first thing to note is how we make hydrogen normally. Um, so that's through steam, methane reforming using natural gas. That uses around sort of three tonnes of methane for every tonne of hydrogen you produce and then produces around 10 tonnes of CO2 uh, as an output. Blue hydrogen is the same process, essentially, but what you're relying on is carbon capture technologies to, to actually capture that. So you need you basically you need one system to capture the tail gases, and that's sort of around 85 percent of tail gases that we think could be. Uh, captured in those instances. I mean, there's not any, any evidence of that actually in practice today, getting um, things sort of, sort of much closer to sort of 40%. Um, and then you need another system to capture the flue gases as well. So that, and, and that, again, sort of hoping for around 85% capture rates, but uh, again, no evidence of that so far. And that's before you even start to consider the cost of, of those systems, which is going to add a huge amounts onto the cost of actual hydrogen production. But the main thing that um, this report has outlined is that this sort of blue hydrogen and this sort of carbon capture approach does nothing to address the fugitive emissions, as they're calling it, within the industry, which counts for around half of the total CO2 equivalent output. So, so I was on um, when we first started this enterprise, I was a couple of years ago, I was on uh, various forums and people from the gas industry were adamant that there were no fugitive emissions. And it's only been as um these special cameras have been fitted into uh, satellites and and now we've got a satellite that we've been able to prove and demonstrate and quantify how much methane is going into the atmosphere. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something that in our upcoming hydrogen report I've been sort of focused on in in the modelling is that when you're looking at people projecting the cost of blue hydrogen in the future to be falling below the cost of grey hydrogen and green hydrogen, that's a real reliance on these capture rates. Uh, and completely ignoring these fugitive emissions. But I think what you have to consider is that the accountability behind these upstream emissions is going to rise massively. So say we're only putting a price on the carbon of, say, 5% now, that'll certainly be up towards 80 90% by 2050. So that price of paying for that carbon is going to make blue hydrogen uneconomic, even in the long term. And, and, and it's really it's really interesting that, that two points I'd like to raise is that if you're an organisation who have habitually lied about your emissions, your fugitive emissions, can you be trusted? If you're going to say, no, we're going to abate all of our upstream emissions, 
well, when you when you have or when you've spent some money on it, do we believe you? And secondly, these are all very large organisations, mostly oil companies, mostly who have great dialogues with the, their country's governments. And the the electrolysis industry, the green hydrogen industry, are mostly made up of, of small tech startups who have no dialogue with the and no input into uh, framework legislation that goes on in in the countries yeah exactly um i think that's exactly the case and i think what you um you also have to remember is that even if you try to abate all of these emissions the sort of the accidental uh emissions and what you sort of can't really control and monitor the iea reckons counts for around 25 percent of total oil and gas emissions so even if you implement carbon capture systems absolutely everywhere within the gas value chain you're still only reducing emissions by 75 percent i think simply really if you're looking at a future energy system there can't be fossil fuels involved um if it's going to be net zero i just don't think that's no uh, I'm, i mean i'm in a hundred percent agreement but how do i make the prime minister and the president in a hundred percent agreement because they're only hearing from oil companies oh, i mean it's just a matter of time i think there's going to be obviously the oil companies have a massive amount of power now um but i mean if you look in the uk especially for example coal companies uh now they don't exist I think it will eventually be the same with gas and it'll be the utilities that drive the conversation. It's just it's just a matter of when um, this will start to happen. I'm not sure whether or not um, all companies in the UK went through uh, a thinning out process in 1979 with the the, the uh, union battle with the Conservative government. Um, we haven't got that amount of time. If it it takes that long for the gas industry to lose its sway over government, we just don't have that kind of time. No, I completely agree. But I think I think this is this is probably one of the key the key discussions now is this blue hydrogen discussion. I think I don't think realistic countries like uh, developed countries in particular are going to get away with funding new natural gas projects. I think being able to say blue hydrogen is clean hydrogen is something that is like it's really slipping under the radar and i think it needs to really be brought to the attention i think it's actually going to be a real really key discussion because i mean even personally i i think i i think i got sort of swept along with blue hydrogen is oh yeah this is probably necessary to get the hydrogen industry off the ground but if you're installing these these uh plants now with an investment life cycle of 25 years you're taking us to nearly 2050 and yeah i'm I'm gonna get throwing a last sort of idea of optimism that in America, you can get natural gas very cheaply and you can turn it into, put it through the steam reforming process relatively cheaply. In Russia, you can do the same. Anywhere you don't produce enough natural gas, you're going to get your your natural gas by having it in turn to liquid natural gas uh, uh, and then shipped and then regasified. And that's takes it from a dollar fifty per kilogram to seven dollars per kilogram minimum and suddenly that's the target in japan in china in taiwan in south korea the target's not a dollar fifty it's seven dollars we can hit that with green hydrogen tomorrow yeah you're definitely right i think it's, the, it's the, these countries it's the developed countries where the cost of natural gas is high where you're going to see the um where you're going to see these hydrogen markets emerge uh, first Europe's obviously got a little bit of a bias due to its um, it, the sort of higher amount of climate pressure there, but I think obviously the countries like the US and Russia sadly will be a little bit further down the line, and and probably stand to lose out because of it as well. The investment they're putting into the companies in those countries uh, is going to put them at a disadvantage. Oh yeah, America's going to struggle terribly with hydrogen because 
uh, at the moment, if you read uh, on forums in the States, you're seeing no, not blue hydrogen, but all hydrogen is bad because we're all Tesla lovers and we want ele electrification by battery and we don't want anything to do with anything that could be touched by an oil company. That they're, they're not even open-minded to the idea of green hydrogen. And so they're, they're not developing it. So it's going to come last. Um, you can't you can't come last in electric cars and then come last in hydrogen and still remain a superpower economically. On that mm. bombshell. Mm, yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's something to think about. Well, we were talking more. So it's the same subject. So I, I, I just literally uh, came across a piece that talked about Xpeng uh, exporting into um, into all places, Norway. So it, it makes uh, EVs. It's about uh, an eighth the size of Tesla. It's doing uh, what, uh, what's Tesla, Tesla up to about a million vehicles a year. It's doing a, a fraction of that. It's they've started exporting cars from China. Now, if you go right the way back to um, the 1903, when the the, Ford, the Model T Ford was produced, you know, immediately someone from Britain bought a dozen of them and took them to the UK to try and sell them. And of course, he didn't worry about the fact that there wouldn't be any petrol stations or any any infrastructure and the roads weren't good enough. He just went and did it. Um, of course, he spent a whole year. Uh, he sold one a month um, and, it, and it almost went bust. But Ford then kind of bailed him out and bought into Europe and conquered the world via Europe and then and then other parts of the world. Well, China has to demonstrate to us that it's able to do the same. And Xpeng has gone not to the UK, but to Norway, where 80% of all new vehicles are, are EVs. And it's followed a month behind NIO, another um, Chinese car, EV car manufacturer. And it's... Um, and uh, and that went to Norway a month, you know, in July. So they're they're seeing this sudden influx. I mean, they only sell 150,000 cars a month. Is it a month or a year in Norway? They don't sell a lot of cars in Norway. Um, and and yet 80% of them are EVs, and everyone's using it as their sample market of of exemplar market. How do you get into Europe? Can you export the cars as they are? Do they drive on the correct side of the road, etc.? Can we make enough of them? And this has just happened as Xpeng doubled its factory capacity in China. So I checked out the the, web, the Xpeng website with the, the the cars. I mean, they look very good. Yeah. So it started out with an SUV, and there is this passion for SUVs. Uh, they call them miniature SUVs these days, and it turns out that's just a hatchback. <laughs> um, yeah. But this is kind of a large hatchback, and then uh, a saloon, and now they're about to introduce a moderate-sized saloon car. So much more the type of car that is sold in Europe. Yeah. And, I mean, if you look at the size of a Tesla 3, and you see them on the roads, and you compare them with the you know, VW Golf, you go, well, yeah, it's... It's, you know, all right, it's a might, tiny bit bigger, but it's not, it's the same kind of car. It's suitable for Europe. And Xpeng's new cars will be more, even more suitable for Europe. Its P7 is a bit of a luxury car, but they're selling a lot of them. And a Neo is being overtaken. What, what was really interesting was looking at their share price. I mean, and their numbers came out yesterday for um, Xpeng, 
and they had 400 percent up on last year mm, yeah and neo is only about 170 percent up on last year and they have just overtaken them mm. uh, in the month so uh q2 numbers will show that xpeng valued at 39 billion is bigger than neo valued at 63 billion that can't be right that can't last very long so anyone who's speculating on car company prices um is going to jump on that well i imagine if we looked at the price today the day after those announcements there may be adjustments